All right, everybody. Welcome to Politics Today. This is James Ryan O'Hara, and let's get started. What's going on? It's been a while since I've actually recorded any podcast. Probably been about a month, maybe, since I posted a podcast, and a lot of things have happened in a month. As you can imagine, it's been a interesting month, um, full of events. So one of the reasons why I haven't been out um, recording and posting stuff um, is really because of seriousness of the moment, and I really wanted to take some time to sit back and appreciate everything that was going on before I laid down something um, in audio form uh, for people to hear. If you follow my Facebook page, uh, which is James Ryan O'Hara, um, and you listen to the posts or read the posts that I put on there, um, you probably know my opinion on a lot of these things. Um, I'm very conservative. I lean probably more libertarian than anything, um, but I definitely take a conservative line of things. And lately, that has not been very popular in the interwebs for people to read. Uh, so I've been getting a lot of interesting conversations and debate going um, back and forth. But I did want to get back onto my podcast and start actually laying down stuff and recording things because there's a lot of things that can be said a lot easier than can be posted into a simple, small Facebook rant, for example. Um, even though those have their value and they have their place, um, no one wants to read gigantic, long, crazy posts um, that go on forever. So it is a lot easier to kind of sit back and record something vocally um, and put all the pieces together. So what some of the things that happened last first, this last month? The Really the big thing, obviously, is the Black Lives Matter movement and the events that are circulating around um, the death of George Floyd, uh, the murder of George Floyd, I should say, which is, of course, outrageous, as most people have said. But a lot of the events that have unfolded over the last month, they can find their beginnings in what happened with George Floyd um, and the aggressive response against the police that has come out of those uh, of that singular event. But the reality is that this is not something that comes out of a singular event. Um, massive movements like this, a huge social movement um, like Black Lives Matter, uh, does not simply come around because of one death, so to speak. And if you listen to the arguments that's being made by proponents of Black Lives Matter and people um, on on the left and on the right too, it, it's really a bipartisan thing, um, is that there needs to be change, that something needs to happen, that this did not start with George Floyd, that this goes deeper. It goes back far into other events that have occurred. Um, in some respects, people pushed all the way back to the 1800s, but uh, we'll get into that in a little bit as I continue on uh, with the podcast. But um, we'll talk a little bit about the history behind some of this stuff. Uh, so it, it doesn't just start with George Floyd. George Floyd is sort of the, the straw that breaks the camel's back and created this movement out of that, right? This movement was already created, but it really got its impetus to come out now from this event. And I, a lot of that might have to do with 
we have been in lockdowns for months and we've been dealing with a, a crisis in our, our country and the economy with coronavirus. And it has led to a lot of activism by people, um, not only on the coronavirus front where people are being active and speaking out about that, but um, more active in other things. And people are obviously have a lot of time to consume the news and see what's going on. So stories that may have in the past um, been, I don't want to say covered up, that's not really the right term for it, but stories that have in the past not have gotten full coverage the way uh, this story did um, wouldn't have happened. It wouldn't have had this big outpouring of, of people onto the streets and obviously the things that have come from that. So I want to do a, a little bit of recap on the events, right? So we have George Floyd who's murdered. He's murdered by a police officer in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And it's on video. So everyone has seen it. And of course you have these uh, protests that immediately begin after that for the arrest of this police officer. And for justice to be served. And it does take Minneapolis a while to come out and do that arrest. Um, and they finally do. They arrest this police officer. They charge him, of course, with murder. Then they first is third-degree murder. And then they up the charges to second-degree murder. And uh, the other officers are then eventually arrested as well. And we have uh, a big movement there um, that happens. But that's what instigates really all these Black Lives Matter protests. Um, which some devolved into riots and into looting and widespread. But it has kicked off a new chapter, so to speak. Uh, the goal, of course, of the protest was to bring these officers to justice and to bring awareness to what's going on within the black community. And that is where I want to start off with my presentation today. So this is kind of a hard podcast to come to because I have many friends of mine who know I lean conservative, and conservatives are not always known to be the most uh, touchy-feely people. And I wanted to get my thoughts out and try to do it as non-offensive, of course, as you can, even though this is a very touchy subject. Um, so it took me a while to figure out how I wanted to address this and, and, and talk about the Black Lives Matter movement. And I have had lots of things happen over the last month. I've lost some good friends of mine, people who I grew up with and knew very, very well. Um, I've been called all sorts of names online, on social media. Um, I've heard the racist term been thrown around a lot, all simply because I might just disagree with something um, that was said or post something that um, is in, in opposition to a viewpoint that's being pushed forward. And so what do I mean by that? Well, um, I don't believe everybody is a racist. And I don't believe that we have a systemic racist problem in this country. Um, I'm on the other side of things. I believe in a free country where people have the right to their opinions and they have freedom to express themselves. And it goes for all sides. So I don't see uh, the country as a systemically racist uh, country. And I don't see organizations like the police as being systemically racist. Um, now, I can say that from my perspective, I'm white, I'm not black. And I can say those things, and I've been told on the other side that I'm wrong, that the, that we are in a systemically racist country, and that what I see is different than what other people see on the other side. And so I've been open to looking at things from both sides. So I had uh, some friends of mine reach out to me, and they wanted me to 
um, expand my mind, open my horizons, and and open my mind and expand my horizons, I should say, and look into things from their point of view. So um, there's something that's been shared out online, and I do recommend people go and look at it. And it's kind of called, I forget the exact name of it, but it was something along the anti-racist playbook, right? Um, where you can go in and look at all these resources that have been curated that will help you become less of a racist, uh, so to speak, and more open. Um, Now, it's important to say when I say less of a racist, I'm not saying that people are racist to begin with. Um, It's just an anti-racist playbook. Uh, Basically, what it's saying is that we all have, to some degree, I guess, inherent racism, and there's a if you know about it and you become aware of it, then you can then address it, of course, and move on, which I, I don't think that's a false statement to make. I, I do believe that has some validity to it. I mean, people do have prejudices that, right, but we bring to the table. Everyone does. No matter who you are, what color you are, where you're from, you're going to bring prejudices with you to the table that uh, are not maybe correct, right, in any respect. So it's good to be aware of your prejudice, aware of where you may be wrong, and look to improve yourself. Improving yourself is something you should always be doing, especially as an American. You should go out there and use the freedom that we have to improve yourself and improve upon um, yourself. So that's kind of where I took a start to this. So I wanted to look into different things. Um, One of those things was, uh, of course, Black Lives Matter itself, um, the movement, what the goal was, what their viewpoints were. Um, I also... Looked into white privilege, this uh, concept of white privilege, and how uh, it impacts our society and people as a being a white person, how it would impact me. And I also looked at what anti-racism is on its face and, and what that's about. So over the last month, I've read four books, and I've gotten pretty deep into the weeds, so to speak, on this issue, and tried to learn as much background as I can about uh these movements and and what they are all about. So I'm going to give you a little bit of insight into all that kind of stuff. So let's start with um, we'll start with Black Lives Matters. That's really where this begins, right? So Black Lives Matter is an organization. Um, they formed, uh, and I might be preaching to the choir here, but they formed after the Trayvon Martin uh, incident uh, and really after the uh, incident with Michael Brown, um, where Michael Brown was killed. That's the familiarly known as the hands up, don't shoot. Uh, motto that has been thrown around there. Now, there's a lot of uh, research that's been done on that topic or whether that's true, the hands up, don't shoot thing, but that is where the story of Black Lives Matter really begins, right? And it has these three founders, Opal Tometi, and I'm sorry if I pronounced her name wrong, Alicia Garza, and Patrice Cullors. Uh, They got together after that event and really um, after Trayvon Martin and, and, and really the, the issue that happened with Michael Brown and coalesced into this movement that became known as Black Lives Matter, uh, which began as a hashtag, eventually became an organization, and then they have gone out and, of course, are pushing uh, their reform agenda that they want to see done. So I decided to research a little bit about Black Lives Matter um, and into the founders themselves. So luckily... The world of YouTube is a great thing. There's lots of presentations that you can watch on there. Um, and a lot of these were in this anti-racist playbook. Um, there were links to this kind of stuff so you can go to. It's actually very, very helpful to find all the information that I wanted to find. So I watched a few things. I watched Alicia Garza, um, a few presentations uh, from her. 
and heard her viewpoints and kind of where the background begins with Black Lives Matter and why they formed it. Um, I also watched a lot of Patrice Cullors. Um, she has multiple TED Talks and multiple meetings or, or conferences, I would say, at different universities. And she has. I even bought her a book, um, which is When They Call You a Terrorist by Patrice Cullors, which was very eye-opening to her perspective. Um, so I was opened up to the movement of Black Lives Matter. Now, there's an important distinction that needs to be made at this point. Black Lives Matter, the organization, and Black Lives Matter, the motto or slogan, the phrase saying Black Lives Matter, are two separate entities. And I found that out pretty quickly once I began to actually research into what Black Lives Matter was all about. And you, it is an important distinction. I can't go past that because they are two separate complete things. If you go online and you hashtag something and you're saying Black Lives Matter, um, you're being very sincere. And 99.9% of people going online and posting this stuff are being sincere that black lives really do matter. That the fact that someone's African American or someone is a person of color should not make any difference on the value of their life in any respect and any system um your your color shouldn't matter um these are these are basic understandings that we especially as americans should understand uh americans we have a long history of racist policies in this country of treating people differently based on where they are from um and we have constantly been improving since the founding of the united states to try to address those issues um and that all culminates of course in a saying like black lives matter um when someone's killed and the color of their skin plays a factor that's a huge issue in this country that should never be tolerated someone should we should never tolerate something because someone's color they're killed so essentially when we're talking about racism we're saying racism is bad treating someone differently because of the color of skin that is bad that would be racism um and therefore black lives do matter and Black lives have value, I should say. And if you look at the group Black Lives Matter as an organization, you get quite a different feel. Their motto of Black Lives Matter does not fit with the ideal of Black Lives Matter. When you hear people say things like, all lives matter, which is a trending hashtag for people in opposition to the BLM movement. And it's a trending hashtag doesn't really, one, make sense. Um, it's more offensive, I think, than anything when you tell someone, well, all lives matter. Um, and believe me, I was guilty of this. Years ago, I, I had a conversation with someone once, and I, I said the same thing. I said, all lives matter. I was guilty of it myself. And it's, it's almost a, uh, in, it's an automatic reaction that, people have who are not uh, black or African-American or a person of color, right? We have this automatic reaction that I'm not a racist. All lives matter is what you, your response is. And it's true. We, you know, you do think all lives matter, right? And we don't think we hold one person's life over another person's life. But you, if you're someone out there saying all lives matter as your response, you're not really getting the full picture, in my opinion. You're missing the viewpoint 
that's being pushed forward. And I've seen a lot of people share different Bible verses, you know, saying, hey, this is, you know, not that all the sheep don't matter, but this sheep's in trouble, those kinds of things. Uh, they're all true. All, all lives matter. Yeah, sure, they all lives do matter, but it's being used as a defensive weapon against the Black Lives Matter idea. And that's why understanding the difference is important, I think. Not to say you can't say all lives matter, not to say you can't say black lives matter. But when you actually look at the Black Lives Matter movement, the organization itself, then you draw a different conclusion. Because when you really begin to research things that Alicia Garza has said and things that Patrice Cullors uh, more have said, you begin to understand this organization is not necessarily about black lives mattering. It is about some black lives mattering and other black lives not having the same value. And when I say this, I'm not just saying black lives. When they say not other lives, it's not other lives in general matter as much to them. And I'm not trying to say they're out there trying to kill people or anything like that. Um, we're not talking about that. But we're talking about the, the way they move forward with their with their program, with their organization. Now, now, to understand this, you have to get into their organization. So what is the Black Lives Matter organization all about? Well, if you listen to Alicia Garza and you listen to P- Patrice Cullors, um, they clearly state that they are a Marxist organization. That's what they are. They are Marxist. They're trained Marxists. And they're community organizers. That's really how they came together to form this organization. And that is a, a big distinction because their movement is Marxist in theory. So its goals are Marxist in what they want to accomplish. And when you understand, first of all, what a Marxist movement is, which maybe some people just might get lost on them, but Karl Marx in the 1800s, of course, wrote a series of books um, about the idea of communism, right? That's what Marxism is. And uh, the theory of communism uh, as an economic and political system grew out of that. So people who are Marxists, they follow the teachings of Karl Marx. They believe in communism as the proper government structure, economic and political. All right, that's what they believe. That's what a Marxist wants. And communism, if you are an American, is the opposite of the American system of government, pretty much. It's, it's pretty much the alter ego of American uh, government. It goes against everything that we, as Americans, hold dear. Um, so Marxism in general, bad thing, don't like it, but it's the basis of the Black Lives Matter organization. That is the basis. They are trained Marxists, and they have listed goals. You can find them on their website. Um, and their primary goal, and the reason why they are the movement behind the current situation and the uh, catalyst of the murder of George Floyd is defunding the police and not really defunding the police. That's actually a misnomer that's been given by the media um, a lot lately as this different movement is a abolition of the police. If you listen to Alicia Garza herself, her words she uses is abolish the police, Um, not defunding it's it's abolishment is what she uses it's abolition of the police um same thing with patrice colors they're very clear in that and patrice colors book she's very clear of 
abolishing the police as an entity so that the police do not exist. Now, why is that important or practical? Uh, now, defunding the police is now what this has become, but abolition of police goes deeper. If you listen to Patrice Cullors, if you read her book, which I do recommend, uh, gives you a lot of insight into her life. It reads a lot like a biography. Um, it goes into really the kind of the why that she um, is part of this organization and has started it and her belief system when it comes to the police, which I think is very important. It's important to understand a person's belief system to understand why they do what they do. Um, and she views the police as harmful, that they are a source of harm in the community, especially the black community. And therefore, getting rid of the police it would be a positive thing because you wouldn't have this source of harm and you would replace it with community programs, things like that, that would then uh, take over to better the, uh, the uh, environment in which people are living and not have this aggressive police presence that's happening in the community. Now, um, is she right? Is she wrong? She's neither. <laughs> neither right nor wrong. Um, she's right in some respects. She's wrong in some others. Uh, defunding the police or even uh, abolishing the police, I think, is a ludicrous idea. Um, it's a pie-in-the-sky, utopian idea. And although it doesn't have merit in their arguments, I don't think abolishing the police is even a practical reality. And I'll give you a reason in a second. But the backup to this, the right parts of this argument, in my opinion, are when Patrice Cullors and Alicia Garza um, talk about community programs, access to things, uh, to help people have a better life and where crime and police is not their constant interaction. And I do agree with that. I think there's a lot of things done in policing today that can be changed where you don't have such a aggressive interaction between people and police, um, which are designed around crimes, which in some cases are drug offenses, which are low-level offenses that shouldn't be handled the way they should be, um, and or the way they are, I should say, and lead to bigger things, bigger problems, stuff like that. So there's obviously an inherent issue in the system with how policing is done, which can be improved. So you know, moments like movements like Black Lives Matter, they don't come out of nowhere. They don't. They're not just made up, you know. And that's something that people on the right and conservatives and Republicans need to understand. In my opinion, you really need to understand that these things don't come out of a vacuum. They, they don't just appear and it's like, ah, oh, we want to get rid of police because we don't like cops. There's reasons behind everything. People are motivated to do things. I mean, Patrice Cullors, if you read her biography, she has a very tough life growing up in Los Angeles, or outside of Los Angeles, I should say, but had a very tough life. Her interactions with police were not good by any means. I mean, she grew up in a community where cops were frisking 13- and 14-year-olds, and drugs were a, a common thing, and it was a lower socioeconomic, and their interaction with police was not a pleasant thing, which is a lot of inner-city communities whose interactions with police are not good. So there is some legitimacy to the argument. It shouldn't be just brushed under the rug. But the idea of getting rid of the police and abolishing them and replacing them with community programs doesn't work. And it's Policing 101. There's a reason why police are involved, and crime is the major reason behind it. You can redefine what crime is, but crime is still going to exist. And you're still going to need the police to move in and handle um, what is going on. So there are things that can be improved um, with policing, 
there are social programs um, and community programs that can be enacted, which may assist in helping ease the issues between the black community and police. And I'm all for that. But the idea of replacing police with the ideology that Black Lives Matter stands for does not get you anywhere. And that's because it's an anti-American philosophy. It's essentially what it is. It is an anti-democratic philosophy. It is a socialist Marxist philosophy. And I'm going to get to this in a minute with something else that was said. So moving past Black Lives Matter, that's really what the organization's about. Um, that's their their backup. And if you, if you have a dispute with what I've said about Black Lives Matter, um, then I'm, I'm happy to hear it. Uh, you can email me um, all you want. It's politicstodayjro at gmail.com. So feel free to email me or through, shoot me a comment online. And I'm happy to hear what your opposition is to my argument for what they stand for. I have read their books. I have listened to them. I have been to their website. I have seen what they want. So I, I'm trying to characterize them as nonpartisan as I can and as truthfully as I can of what they want. Um, now, I can say I disagree with it, and I'm obviously adding that into this, but that is what the movement is behind. They, they are a Marxist movement. They they do want to replace police with social programs, essentially, um, is what they want to do. And now, where's their founding for this? So their founding for this comes from a version of history. And I want to be clear how I say a version of history, because I'm a historian myself. And history is something that is very hard to understand when you look at history and you use our perspective of now and you place it on people who lived 100 years ago, 150 years ago. And where does a lot of the stuff come from in this movement, Black Lives Matter, it comes from, of course, slavery and the issues with slavery in the United States. So interestingly enough, when I was listening to one of Alicia Garza's interviews, she had mentioned that she was reading a book uh, that's by a man named Edward Baptist, and it's uh, called The Half Never Been Told. And I found that interesting because I hadn't heard of the book, and she said it was very interesting talking about the, the slavery and things like that. So I decided to go out and buy the book and read it myself, and it's a huge book, very good, excellent book. In fact, uh, if Edward Baptist ever listens to this podcast, uh, as a historian, I commend you. I think it's great historical piece uh, i think he did great research in it and it covers a huge amount of a huge period of time it covers the founding of the united states all the way through the 1800s um and the whole process of slavery and and without getting too far into the weeds uh i do recommend you read the book but it covers slavery as an institution and it, it basically argues against the i don't want to say it argues against abolition but it argues against the abolitionist viewpoint that slavery was on its way out it was arguing that slavery was stronger than ever, and it was a capitalist boon in America. In fact, that it's responsible for capitalism being successful in the United States. Now, I do take some um, difference with that opinion, I think historians would argue, but I do not argue the, the merits of it, uh, that slavery and the cotton production, essentially, that's what he focuses on, cotton production, was a huge factor in driving economic growth in the United States throughout the 1800s. Now, that's important to understand, not because the book is great, but because capitalism is at the forefront of the book. And capitalism is anti-Marxism. 
Marxism is the opposing force to capitalism, right? Marxism believes the workers should control everything and that the means of production should be in the hands of the proletariat, right? So this is the opposing view of capitalism. So when you begin to connect slavery as an institution, however horrible it is, to capitalism, you begin to make these assumptions, and, and I will give Edward Baptist his credit. He doesn't really give these assumptions in his story. Um, it, he, his book is very historically uh, centered, um, and he doesn't try to extrapolate certain things out of it. So I don't want to put words into his mouth that he doesn't put in the book. But um, the idea is the reader behind it can pull out their own input. And so obviously, in my viewpoint alicia garza patrice colors they have taken out of this story of slavery and its connection with capitalism that capitalism is somehow bad that it is a result of slavery right that this country is built upon the back of slaves and therefore there is some kind of uh retribution owed due to that and that's important when we get to the black lives matter movement itself uh because when you begin looking into these these movements around it, these supporters of Black Lives Matter, you almost hear the same thing over and over and over again. Tear down anything that represents the capitalist American system. Well, I should say what they would call the racist capitalist American system. And then give what's owed to the people it's owed to. And that's an important factor in this. So in this same anti-racist playbook, moving a little past Black Lives Matter themselves, you get a couple other factors that emerge you have the idea of white privilege that comes up and you have this other idea of anti-racism itself and so i have some very good liberal friends of mine who decided to share with me their viewpoints on anti-racism and they directed me to a certain doctor professor um dr ibram kendi and if you listen to dr ibram kendi his approach is this a concept known as anti-racism, how to be an anti-racist. And this is where white privilege plays into this. So and I'm going to do a transition here away from Black Lives Matter into anti-racism and the concept of white privilege, or rather white privilege and anti-racism. So let's start with white privilege. White privilege has been a hot topic lately. It's come up. It's uh, the brainchild of this woman named Peggy McIntosh. Um, she wrote a kind of a white paper on on white privilege. I shouldn't say a white paper on white privilege, but a academic paper on white privilege. And it points out all these different um, attitudes, these different things that happen in people's daily lives, which show their privilege because they're white. And basically the the in and out of white privilege is that if you're white, you're privileged, you have things have happened to you because you're white, and you don't have to deal with other things because you're white. Uh, and therefore, if you're not white, you have all these extra things you have to get through um, in order to be successful that white people don't have to do. And therefore, um, you're privileged because of that. That is the, the basic concept, right? She even draws a line basically and says anything above this line is privilege. Anything below this line is um, someone who's not privileged and this line is social justice. Um, and it goes back and forth. That's Peggy McIntosh's um, theory. Now, bear saying that Peggy McIntosh is a very racist woman. In fact, she in, in fact admits to being racist in her presentation of this idea of white privilege. So I, I think that needs to be said. Now, does the concept of privilege exist? If you follow her t- 
teaching, sure, but the problem is she blames every disadvantage um, for any one of person, any person of color, on the privilege of white people, and I think that's incorrect. There, there's no way you could possibly blame an entire group of people because of the color of their skin for saying that they are privileged. I mean, you can go all over the world, and there's white people all over the world that are not privileged, um, that are in situations where they're the complete opposite. And yet the same theory would not apply to them. So as a theory, it doesn't work because it can't be applied to everybody. It can only be applied to a certain elite group of white people who may have been born into good situations. And therefore, uh, really, the situation they're born in was privileged and not the color of their skin. Uh, and it can go, uh, that can apply to anyone of any color. So the, on a basis, white privilege is a myth. It's made up. It doesn't actually bear out any true evidence if you actually were look to uh, look at it in a logical way. Um, but brings us to Ibram Kendi and anti-racism. And I know this is a long tangent on all this stuff, but it's been a month, so I have a lot to get out to you guys. Now, Ibram Kendi's theory of anti-racism, that was an eye-opening theory. Uh, he, he has a very intelligent argument that he gives um, about anti-racism, but the essentials of Ibram Kendi's theory on anti-racism is that you can't not just be not racist. That not racist is not enough. That you have to be anti-racist. And you might be asking yourself right now, well, yeah, I hate racism. I'm an anti-racist. But you're not an anti-racist. Hating racism is not enough to be an anti-racist, according to Ibram Kendi. Uh, in order to be anti-racist, you must pursue anti-racist things so one is be aware of your white privilege and acknowledge it which i clearly have not done so i would have already broken one of the first rules and the second would be that you need to embrace these anti-racist viewpoints so you begin to read his books and you go well, what is an anti-racist viewpoint because it sounds very good right we all have we all want to embrace anti-racist viewpoints nobody wants to be called a racist and in fact that's a driving factor behind what's going on right now. Uh, so what is an anti-racist viewpoint? Well, according to Ibram Kendi, an, an anti-racist viewpoint is things like reparations or universal health care paid for by the government. Those things, social programs paid for by the government, are anti-racist. So right there he makes a connection between socialism, um, a deviation from from Marxism, which is Black Lives Matter, right? He takes socialist viewpoints and says that those are now anti-racist. So he ties in socialism with anti-racism. So you cannot be just not racist. That's not good enough. You have to be anti-racist. And in order to be anti-racist, you need to embrace socialism. So what is the end factor of both of these movements, Black Lives Matter, the anti-racist movements, what's going on? Socialism. That's the end factor. That in a socialist utopia... All of racism will be solved. And that's a very Marxist viewpoint. It really is. This utopian idea that everyone will be treated equally if they follow this system. It's not an old concept. It's been around since the 1800s. It really was uh, put forward, especially as a Democratic Party tenant in the 1920s and 1930s with the uh, New Deal. And then with the Great Society programs of Johnson in the 1960s, um, and now in our modern welfare state that we have today. So 
there's a tie-in with the Democrat Party there, of course, and a tie-in with Marxism and socialism with the racist, anti-racist argument. So that is why I'm not a Black Lives Matter organization supporter. On this journey I've gone down, there is a connection between these things. And it goes beyond just the connection of arguing that you have racist or anti-racist. And or that Black Lives Matter is a Marxist organization, but the Black Lives Matter motto is a good thing. Um, it goes beyond those things because you tie into politics, you inherently tie into social systems and economic systems with socialism and the whole political system. There's a reason why the Democrat Party has embraced these things and why socialism has become such a broad point in the Democrat Party itself. These they're, they're one and the same. In fact, there's been a lot of arguments been made that the money you donate to Black Lives Matter is actually going into Democrat Party campaigns and electing Democrat politicians into positions, which, mind you, a lot of them are white and have quote-unquote white privilege. So it doesn't make a lot of logical sense, but that's the reality. And also, if you look at police brutality statistics, they're done in most of the cities with the most police brutality incidents are run by Democrat politicians and have been for the last 30 to 40 years. So it is almost a false dichotomy, but it's there. It's reality. And so it's important to be note. Now, this is the stuff I've been saying, and of course this is the stuff that labels you as a racist if you say it, um, even if people don't know your background or anything. Now, my point of this wasn't to make myself a racist. My point of myself was to point out that there are things within this movement that are not legitimate um, within the guise of a legitimate issue, which is equality for African Americans within our system and the getting rid of uh, police brutality and mistreatment of African Americans, which I do believe has validity. So that right there, folks, is, is what actual real anti-racism is. <laughs> anti-racism is actually fixing problems that affect people of color or African-Americans or any other person who's being mistreated because of the color of their skin or their race. That is actually what anti-racism is, not these theories being pushed forward by activists who are moving towards socialism as their answer because it goes apart from everything that the United States should stand for. And the reason why it has to be said is because you have – the R word, racist, being thrown out there anytime anyone disagrees with this movement. And that becomes a major issue because it shuts people up. It, it, it is used, just like the privilege argument is used, it's used as a weapon to disarm people. You may have a valid argument. You may have a valid viewpoint. And you may say that viewpoint. But because someone doesn't like your opinion... They can label you privileged or label you a racist. And all of a sudden, your opinion no longer has validity to it. It now becomes this non-important thing. It's just a statement that's said that has no bearing. And therefore, you don't have a place or a seat at the table in the argument. You are then removed from the argument. And thus, your thought process is removed because it goes against the groupthink of the people that are part of the movement. And that's the real danger here, because you could see politicians acquiescing to it as we speak. Something comes up, someone wants to stand against it, like, hey, don't tear down that monument to George Washington, and you're looked at as, you're the oppressor. You have privilege. 
George Washington had white privilege, so therefore George Washington must be removed. He's no longer valid. And when you tear down the building blocks of our system, that is what leads to tyranny and leads to problems. You know, conservatives argue a lot for freedom and equality, right? Constitutional principles, like the Bill of Rights. The idea that you have freedom of speech, freedom to express yourself, you have freedom to protest um, and go out there on the street, right? And that it doesn't matter whether you're protesting a, uh, a police shooting that was improper or done maybe with racist intent, or if you're protesting a lockdown order you don't feel is correct and that the government is infringing on your freedoms. Both of those things are First Amendment acts and therefore protected and shouldn't be demonized either way. You have freedom of speech to speak out and say what you your opinions are without being told you're a racist for saying them because they don't meet the guidelines set forth by a professor who changed the definitions of what racism is. Um, we believe freedom in the press, that the press should be able to cover things without being stopped um, or influenced by the government, and thus should not take a side on one side of the government or not, um, that the press should be free and should tell stories as are, should be reported, um, and they should not report opinion as news. Um, that's something we believe. I uh, believe you have the right to petition your government, ask them to change things. Um, and protest on that behalf. We believe in the Second Amendment, of course, and your right to bear arms, which we saw recently with the two individuals who uh, have been, I love how they're labeled Ken and Karen for defending their house with their AR-15 and rifle, which they had terrible trigger discipline, but either way, they were defending their property, right? Um, We believe in the Fourth and Fifth Amendment, your right to due process, right? Something that was taken away from George Floyd. He did not have his due process. He was he, he was killed on the street. So that's something that goes in the face of conservatism and American ideals. That's wrong. We all agree with that. No one has disagreed with that. And we believe in rule of law and property rights, meaning you don't just destroy things and tear down statues because you don't like them. You don't just riot and loot or riot because it's the, the voice of the unheard, as they say, as Martin Luther King once said. That's not what the point of the American system is. We believe that states have their equal rights to do what they need to do. They have rights that aren't enshrined in the Constitution. All these things. We, we stand for racial equality, for equality on all fronts, and the American system, as flawed as it has been for many years, because we have a Constitution and because we have rights enshrined in that Constitution, we have a pathway to change. And without throwing another log on the fire here of controversial things to talk about, that's one of the issues I have with Colin Kaepernick. The kneeling before the national anthem, um, to me, and the flag, becomes a symbol of that you don't respect the United States as a country. Now, whether that's what his actual argument is or not, his argument is against police brutality, I understand that. But because it's chosen to be done during the national anthem and done while the flag is being displayed, it inherently connects it to the United States. And the idea is that the United States is not a good country because it allows these things. Well, my argument is the United States allows for the repair of these injustices within its system. And therefore, you stand for that national anthem you stand for that flag because the country it represents is the freest country on the planet 
with a system of government that allows you to redress your grievances and change things within the system. And that is the real true fight here, changing things within the system. You know, a lot has been said over the last few weeks um, about this concept of you know, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, the civil rights leaders, and how this is a manifestation of the things that happened in the 1960s um, happening again. And how these riots and um, the protests, uh, really should say protests and some riots that come associated with it, are ways of getting heard uh, for years of injustices that were done. And this is defended with Black Lives Matter itself. Uh, it has spokespeople who have come out on recently on television saying, burn the whole system down. We're going to burn the whole system down um, uh, because it's not listening to us. right? And if it doesn't listen to us, we tear it all down and get rid of it. And that right there is it deviates so far from actual reality and history of the civil rights movement. It's it's crazy, but we we have a skewed view of what the civil rights movement was about. We have a very um, heroic view uh, of what the civil rights movement was like and about. And as someone who studied this intensely. Uh, we have a habit of doing that as Americans, right? As any, as humans, we have a habit of it's human nature to make things easy to digest and easy to understand, right? When you pick up a high school or middle school history book and you open it up and it talks about the civil rights movement, it's very positive. And Martin Luther King did these things. And uh, because he stood up and he was nonviolent, there was change. And eventually people just got convinced that he was on the right track and that things happened. And of course it wasn't really like that. Martin Luther King Jr. had to fight and claw his way through all sorts of problems to even get hurt in the first place. I mean, there's a man who was arrested multiple times uh, for the stupidest things in the South for really fighting unjust laws. Uh, and yes, the civil rights movement had to get through a lot of things. I mean, there were, they had to get through dogs being let loose on them by the police and fire hoses and being actually beaten on the street like you had during the March on Selma. So you have a lot of things that occurred in the civil rights movement aren't pretty. They're not easy. They're not, e they're not nice and easily digestible and broken down little things that are, oh, yeah, this is so great. Now, in a history book, it is because you get a chapter to talk about this stuff. And most kids in middle school and high school can't handle the real true story of what happened and what really went down, and how tough it really was. That's why you have figures like Malcolm X who were very successful and took a very aggressive position. But the reality was Malcolm X, so was he as successful as Martin Luther King Jr.? I would argue no, he was not ever that successful. And why? Because the groundwork wasn't there that Martin Luther King was doing. And that's the background stuff that you don't see. You know, there's a really good book if you read, um, I've given you a bunch of books, suggestions today. So you should look in all of them. You should read Patrice Cullors' book, um, When They Call You a Terrorist, very enlightening into the Black Lives Matter movement. You should read um, The Half Never Been Told by Edward Baptist. If you have a long time, it's a huge book, um, but it's really good about slavery. And you should definitely uh, read this other book I'm about to mention, which is by Charles Hamilton Houston. It's called Groundwork. Uh, and it's a biography on Charleston, Charles Hamilton Houston. And he was a, um, an attorney and law professor. And he was really the, the mentor 
to Thurgood Marshall, who's one of my heroes of the civil rights movement. And I would argue that as much as Martin Luther King Jr. did, Thurgood Marshall did far more for the civil rights movement and actual tangible things that you can measure, right? I, I mean, it's, it's hard to measure Martin Luther King uh, as far as tangible stuff because, yes, you, you have the marches, and I'm, I'm going to get criticized for any time you say anything against Martin Luther King, which I'm not criticizing Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, but tangible things that Martin Luther King Jr., it's tough sometimes because movements are hard to pin down. They're, they're social movements. They, they have feeling with them, and they get things accomplished because of feelings. And so things like, hey, the March on Selma, you know, that's a big deal, right? The Montgomery bus boycott, that, that's a tangible thing you can attribute to Martin Luther King Jr. But what happened behind those? Like, why did the Montgomery bus boycott end? Well, it ended because there was a Supreme Court case that said that busing and separating people on a bus and transportation is unconstitutional. Therefore, there's no need for a boycott anymore because the Supreme Court handed down a decision. Well, how did the Supreme Court do it? They didn't just pick it up because Martin Luther King was doing a bus boycott. No, they did it because there was a court uh, battle being fought. There was a lawsuit being done against uh, the bus services. And then that made its way. It took a long time, but it made its way up to the Supreme Court. And it was part of a coordinated effort with the NAACP and Martin Luther King Jr. and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and the and Thurgood Marshall himself, who was doing these things in the background to get this stuff accomplished, right? They were going through the system. They were using the United States Constitution and the system that we have to fix the system from within. And that is the key thing and the key difference, I think, between the conservative movement today and movements like the Black Lives Matter movement. There's two schools of thought here. Black Lives Matter disrupt, replace with socialism because there's because our system's inherently racist and bad. Or the viewpoint that our system is not inherently racist and bad. That our system has allowed racist things to happen, but has been used to fix its injustices within its system. And that is really the, the big difference. It's why I call myself conservative. It's why I believe we can answer these real legitimate problems that we have in the black community in the, and in the American community uh, with racism that we could fix within our system without tearing the system down and destroying it and replacing it with something far worse and far more unequal um, as far as a social system like Marxism, communism, or socialism. So uh, that is my podcast for today. Um, I did want to get into some other things. I'll record a podcast probably later or tomorrow and come out with more of the political stuff that's going on today, like Trump and his tweets, uh, which have gotten some coverage, and uh, the coronavirus and its resurgence, and mask wearing and all sorts of other things that are coming about um, within our government system. But I did want to spend one show, one podcast, really talking about the Black Lives Matter movement, what it means in my eyes, and what are some answers to it. So constitutional values is what's going to save us in this, um, a viewpoint that we can fix things and things can get better um, if we put the effort forward to 
make them better. So thank you very much for listening. Again, this is Politics Today. I'm James Ryan O'Hara. Um, I do have an email at politicstodayjro at gmail.com. And, of course, I always post these things on SoundCloud and on your uh, Apple podcast. Uh, feel free to download them and listen to them all you like. And comment on Facebook, of course, um, at James Ryan O'Hara, if you so wish. Uh, and eventually one day I'll probably put a Twitter up there, but I don't want to get as much trouble as the president does. So uh, thank you very much for listening. You guys have a wonderful night and stay free.